Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Black Jackson Estate. What episode is this? 14, because Randy was lucky, unlucky number 13. Um, episode 14, yay! Hey, everybody. Um, we've got a special group episode today. We're going to be talking about the Invincible Era, and we've got all of your faves on the line. Uh, first, we'll... Um, just pour out a little bit of juice for our dear friend Randall. Um, I'll be sure to insert a clip of Get It with Michael and Stevie right about here because that's what he will know. That's what he will know. <laughs> um, so, Randall's got a hot date. You know? Oh, and listen, he has a, a COVID only, date. Yeah, that's the only, oh Lord, a COVID date. That's the only thing worth canceling for a really hot Zoom date. And I'm just assuming. <laughs> That that's exactly what he's got going on. So shout out to Randall. I hope you don't mess this up. Impress her, you know? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a little socially distanced uh, cuffing. How does that work in this era? Do you really want to know? Wow. He will uh-huh. dazzle her with his trivia knowledge. He's got those <laughs> dates, so he's good. <laughs> that's gotta be it. So we're gonna let all of our guests introduce themselves through the trivia that uh, our precious user one has prepared. So let's check in to make sure all the users are available. User one, are you there? What's up? What's up? We made it through the whole year, y'all. I'm excited about that. Oh, wow. What a way to frame this. It truly is December of 2020. Um, wow. Everybody's still here. And for that, we're thankful. User one point, user 1.5 is going to be driving the bulk of this episode. User 1.5, are you there? I am here. And let me tell you guys, um, doing research for these shows is not a joke. So uh, shout out to anybody who does uh, show notes for any podcast or really anything, because uh, especially for this episode, Michael was doing a lot. I can't wait. So to shout out user one. You're thank you. You're welcome. Uh, well, I didn't say that. That's not what I said, but sure. sure. I mean, give me my flowers while I'm well, here. Ain't that what the song right. says? Thank you. You're, you're okay. Thank you. Everybody's prepared episodes and we're equally yoked among the users. I am user two, user dosi, uh, numero de, and I'm proud to be with you. So user one, go ahead and do the trivia and let's introduce each of our guests. Let's get it going, y'all. Y'all know we like to do a, a nice MJ trivia, try to keep it on brand for the episode unless I can't find enough good questions. But I did. And I'm excited. I know y'all know all these answers because they're super duper Michael. And I know you got it. So I'm going to start strong. MJ fangirl. What's up? Hey. (laughs) So um, the first question goes to you. And before you answer it, I want you to just do a quick introduction of yourself. Tell people where they can find you online and then get to what you think the answer to the question is. Okay. Okay. Yes, I'm ready. What year was the Jackson 5 Christmas album released and how many tracks were on the album? Okay. While I let that marinate in my mind, I'll introduce myself. Um, My name is MJ Fangirl and I make videos on YouTube for the Michael Jackson fan community, but I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and most often post, like the most place, place where I post most often is Instagram. So you can find me there. Um, but I think the answer is 1971. And is it 10 songs? Uh, you're so close on both answers. The year is 1970. 
number of tracks is 11. You just one off on both. So I think I'm going to give you that. Yeah, I mean, you're close enough. You're in the ballpark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in the ballpark. All right. Uh, Alicia. Hello. I know you got this one in the bag. You don't need Randall here to help you out with this one. All right. <laughs> You got it. Okay. So after the question, go ahead and do a quick introduction of yourself. Tell the folks where they can find you and then shoot your best shot on an answer. The question is, aside from whatever happens, which is a track from Invincible, what Michael Jackson song from the early 2000s featured Carlos Santana on guitar? Oh, my God. Um, okay, so my name's Alicia. You can find me on Twitter at Forever Sequence. Um, yeah, that's about it. Oh my gosh. Um, I'll be honest, I have no idea. You want to phone a friend? Let's phone a friend. All right, who you want to talk to? Who's my friend? Uh, Lamont. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what was the question again? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it to you again. Don't overthink it because everybody knows the answer to this, actually. Everybody. Okay. 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 Wait, Aside, wait, hold on. And it's an Invincible Era track? It's an Invincible Era track. The era goes from around about 98 to about 03. Okay? okay. That's, all, that's five years. Get five years to work with. Okay. Aside from whatever happens... What MJ song from the early 2000s featured Carlos Santana on guitar? It's an un- unreleased track. Oh, yeah. it's no, it's it's released in a form. Yes, it's released. And there's a video too. Oh, um. Mm-hmm. Come on now, come on, come on, Lamar. You know this one. It's not cry, is it? No, that's not it. Nope, it ain't cry. Michael's in the video. Okay, he got on some glitter boots. Um, one more off. chance. Oh, uh, nope, nope, no. Nope. Oh, uh, Alicia, you want to take take the phone back from your friend? Glitter boots. He got on some glitter boots in the video. And this is from the two thousands era. <laughs> uh huh. Oh, okay. I only had two videos. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. No, no, y'all overthinking it. That's why you can't come to the correct answer. You got to open your mind. Got to so. open your mind. Let it flow freely. Oh, I know what it is. Uh, I'm NJ fangirl. That's my second girl. <laughs> is it, what more can I give? Ding, 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 ding. Yes. All right. Oh, okay. Carlos played that little guitar. In the uh, video, he was on the track. He's on the track. That's him on the track of the guitar. Every time you heard those nice little strings, that was Carlos Santana. Oh, okay. That was a hard one, guys. That was hard? Yeah, that one came out in, um, what year was that video? 2001. Two? Two? Two. Late 2001. It was after 9-11. Yeah, it was after 9-11, so it was that. It was yeah. a video? 
Yeah. yeah. Oh. You don't remember them showing that on entertainment? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I mean, technically it was a video, but technically... Right, that's what I mean. That's, that's what I said. I said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was actual footage. Let's not call it a video. <laughs> well, there was not. The video had, well, we'll get into that later. There was an actual video. It's just it that... It was not Sony, on TRL. <laughs> Sony, Sony messed up and wouldn't release it as a single. Yeah. Um, gotcha. But anyway, that's a whole nother bag of tricks. Um, all, right. all right. All right, Lamont, this is your question through and through. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, y'all, I was running out of stuff. What famous American daytime talk show host hosted Michael Jackson's rebuttal video to Living with Michael Jackson? <laughs> <laughs> okay, first, uh, my name is Lamont. You can find me on pretty much all social media at ithl123. And <laughs> the answer is Maury Povich. Right? Correct. The king of who is the father, <laughs> Maury Povich. I would have gotten that one. I, <laughs> I never understood why that happened, but hey. <laughs> Was 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 his show on Fox at the time? I have no idea, but well, that would maybe what didn't the rebuttal came on Fox, so that would maybe explain they just pulled somebody to come do it. Yeah, because that yeah. <laughs> it was a good choice. He speaks really well when he reads that line. You are the father. He does a good job with that. Oh, okay. Um let's go to user two. Hola. User two. What songs were recorded for, but never made the Invincible album, but ended up on Escape, which was released after Michael Jackson passed away? I got to give the package of songs? Uh, it's three of them. If you can drop two. Ooh. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Uh, okay, you that, said that they were released later. They were released on Escape, but they were recorded during the Invincible sessions. Got it. So that means We Be Ballin' is out of the picture. <laughs> uh, all right. I'm going to vote for Blue Gangsta for obvious reasons. Ding, ding. Um, and Escape for obvious reasons. Ding, ding. Um, the third one... Mm, it wasn't Chicago. Although I wish it was. Was it not? Are you sure it wasn't? Is it Chicago? It is. He recorded that <gasps> in 1999. Oh my goodness. That makes me feel that much better about the song. I thought it was Dangerous Era, to be honest, but okay. Ooh, that makes no, slave to the Rhythm, Dangerous Era, Slave mm, to the mm, Good call out. Good call out. <gasps> um, you can find me at Ashley K. Blue. On um, user, wait a minute. We're missing destiny. So I got to, I'm going to pop back around to, well, user 1.5 probably knows these because she did all the research, but all right. <laughs> what famous user two, what famous pop songstress did Michael Jackson have a crush on in the early 2000s who also performed at his 30th anniversary special? Who is Britney Jean Spears? No. <laughs> yeah, Lamont, shut that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Who was the other? The only other one is Beyonce. Beyonce didn't perform. Wait, did did Destiny's Child perform? They did perform. Oh, so it's Beyonce. Shiny hats and all. You know what? I think it's actually either or. I think that's fair. Yeah, technically it was both, but we all know he did like Beyonce much more. That is fair. Like Britney. I never heard that. I did hear that. Yeah, that was all out there that he had a little crush on Britney Spears. Oh, Michael. Yeah, that was a very in the moment thing, though. But you know, he had to if he let her do this. The, the, the I guess I yeah, I always wondered about that. Okay, yeah. I let it go. He didn't call Tatiana. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think she got a ticket. I mean, MJ oh, Fangirl, you were there. I don't think Tatiana. Was there. <laughs> well, wait, no, I didn't see her there for real. No, I don't <laughs> think she was there. Mm-mm. Not invited. Um, <laughs> 1.5 You're going to know the answer Because you put all this together But here's your question One more chance uh, Was indeed the last original single Released during Michael's lifetime Who wrote that song? Oh One more chance was written by User 2's favorite person And that's going to be beeped out So <laughs> <laughs> That is correct. Mucho, Roberto, Kelito. <laughs> you better say it. You better get creative. Because that government getting bleeped. Destiny, somebody ate your question, but that's all right. I got a new one for you. The song Blue Gangster, we have established, was recorded during the Invincible Era, I think in 1998. What rapper? Took the song unofficially, remixed it, and released it on, I think, like, That Piff or something like that. Who was that rapper? You know what? I do. I actually have that song somewhere, but I'm going to be honest. His name is not. It's some off-brand rapper. Uh He off He off Um, Because it was the first version of that song that I had. uh, Temperamental. Ding, 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 ding. That's who it is. Yeah, because that, because I'm like I said, the funny thing about that, all those songs pretty much on Escape, I laugh about. I'm not gonna say all of them, but it was a few of them that I already had before. Yo, I forgot about Temperamental. Yeah, Yeah. remember he came out with that. I don't think Mike said it was okay, but it was like that remix was tight. Yeah, how the hell did that even happen? Um. And where is Temperamental now? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know about that. That was some great... You always get the hard one, to be honest, Alicia. There is an agenda, but we'll <laughs> save that for another <laughs> podcast. It's, it's true, Alicia. We need to get a hashtag for you. Like Really? Hashtag. Yes. Season <laughs> 1.5 <laughs> gets me. Well, thank goodness we had that awesome trivia to get us warmed up because now we're about to jump head first into as much Invincible as you can stomach. User 1.5, take it away. Um, So, you know, this week I had the pleasure of kind of going through the Invincible era and Michael was doing, he was always doing a whole lot all the time, Um, but especially from the years of 97 to 2003, um, he was, it was jam-packed with good things, bad things, foolery, shenanery, any, any word you can think of, Michael was in the center of it. Um, 
And so I'm really excited. We have a lot to unpack here. Um, and we're going to do our best to try to stay in chronological order. Um, although <laughs> it's, it's a Black Jackson Estate podcast. Who knows? We'll, we'll go wherever the spirit leads us. So um, we're going to start with a little bit of background. So um, the Invincible Era, Michael, as I said previously, is from 97 to 2003. Um, so in order to understand what was happening um, in 97, we got to go back a little way. So the History album was released on June 20th, 1995, and the History tour was from September 96 to October 97. So this was the, as we said in a previous podcast, the history tour was one of the, was the largest grossing tour of the 1990s. Um, and then you have Blood on the Dance Floor, History in the Mix released in May 20th of 1997. So really for that, that uh, three year span or two year span, we have history album, history tour, Blood on the Dance Floor dropping. And Michael was busy touring and doing whatever all, you know, Debbie, uh, <laughs> all the things he had going on from 97, I'm sorry, from 95 to 97. Wait, so, when did he get married? When did he get married to Debbie Rudd? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see, I'm not sure. I believe it was 95. Well, that was, that was during history. So Person, like, well, so remember we watched the video, Debbie was, they had the baby in 97 and um, then Paris came in 98, right? And so he was daddy two times at that point, by the time he really kind of got into Invincible. So he had a little extra bass in his voice. But yeah, I think that was like 97, 98 is when the babies popped out. And then 98 is, or 99 is also when they got the divorce and she got the horses. Daddy's horse farm will be linked in the show notes. It's a beautiful farm, y'all. Y'all are so messy. No, I'm serious. Like, I asked them, could we go when we go to... It's. I love horses. It's high-key, low-key. They are beautiful. And she's got some beautiful horses. Is it, like, open to the public? Can we go and, like, do, like, horseback riding? I think you can. I mean, kind of like any other, you know, farm or stable would be. You know, I think you have to kind of set that up. But I'm going to be honest. I don't think you can. I think... (laughs) From what from what the website looks like to me, it's a private ranch where if you wanted to buy a horse from Debbie Rowe, you could hit her up. She also breeds them specifically for people who race horses. Oh. I don't know if we could just pull up and hop on a pony, but I'm willing to try it out. Yeah, I'm willing to try as a group. Yeah, <laughs> good trip. Maybe we can propose it. Maybe she'll be down. You never yeah. know. I love it. But yeah, I think that was that was the late 90s when all of that 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 when all of that was going on. He was working and doing a lot of personal stuff, which is normal for people to do. But he was working and, you know, getting divorced and getting remarried and having like creating a family. He was doing a lot, which when you kind of think about it, there was an urgency there that I don't think we could have picked up on at the time. But he seemed to be doing a lot very quickly. I don't know. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I just needed that perspective. User 1.5. Carry on. During the making of Ghost, we all, like we said on the, on another podcast, she was the one, you know, riding them around on that on that Harley. So um, she, she's been around for a while. Um, and if you haven't watched some of those, the, the old uh, interviews of hers, uh, go watch them. Little gems tucked inside there. 
Um, so we get to the Invincible album. So Invincible album was recorded from October 97 to September 2001. So he literally came off of tour and started recording this album. Invincible was originally set to be released in 1999. Um, but Michael being Michael uh, took a little bit longer than Epic or Sony uh, would have liked to, to release the album. So we gotta remember during this time, Invincible is Michael's final studio album that was released during his lifetime. It also was the most expensive album ever made. Does anybody know how much it costs to make Invincible? 30 million. $30 million to make Invincible, which Sony was not very happy with, um, as you can imagine, but it was certified double platinum in January, 2002, and to date has sold over 10 million copies. Um, for reasons that we'll discuss later, the, promo the promotion for Invincible wasn't great, which is why I think it's one of the most underrated albums, um, because, you know, Michael had issues with Sony, namely Tommy Mottola, um, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So let's kick this off. I'm really excited to get to, to get started with you guys. So we're going to start in March 2000, and, um, sorry, March 2001 with Michael's Oxford speech. Does anybody remember this speech? I didn't remember this speech until I started doing the research. Does anybody remember Yes. This? Yes, I do. Was this with Rabbi Shmuley? This yes. was with Shmuley yeah. and Yuri Geller. I don't know what that combination was. What do we call that group? Like, what's the name of that group? Fucking what? Yuri Geller. You, Yuri Geller would like male kids bended spoons. He was so oh. fucking weird. Do you have oh, one? Okay. No, I never asked for the spoon. I was trying to get to Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out. Long story Fair short. <laughs> it's a collector's item now. Like you should have probably, you know, hit him up for There's some kid in Belgium with a fucking spoon from Yuri Geller. Frame. They framed it. I would have. But that that was a weird moment. It was Michael, Yuri Geller, Rabbi Shmuley. Was anybody else weird in the picture? I feel like that was just like that. Everyone in the picture was everyone. Weird. So we're all around the same age. We're outside of the Michael Thriller Michael era, which is like the the is the climax, right? We're into a new era. Um, and that era is interesting to say the least. Um I think by the time we get to the Invincible era, it's a mix of art and drama in the Heavy Michael Jackson the world. Heavy on the drama, honey. Heavy. Heavy on the drama in the Michael Jackson, but he's still creating some really dope art. And so it makes it a very interesting era because it's like, we're not at Thriller or Bad anymore. We're in a different space where so many things have happened in his personal life and in his professional life. And he's trying to get back on the saddle again and do another project. But so many other things are happening in between. But there's so many good, there's so much good stuff that I think in that time when I think back, he wasn't getting credit for the good stuff that was happening because the salacious stuff was becoming more predominant on TV, you know? Right. But, and you know, the, the, the cool thing about this, this Oxford speech, right? This is after his kids are born or after, I'm sorry, let me make that clear. After Prince and Paris are born, we don't know nothing about blanket at this time. Um, and 
he was doing this speech, like, so Oxford does, um, you know, they invite speakers to come into their debate society to do these speeches about, you know, things that are happening in the world. And it was a really big deal for Michael Jackson to be there with Shmuley and, and Yuri Geller uh, because they had somehow come, come up with some kind of a Heal the Kids Foundation. So his speech was really important. And if you, you can go online and find a transcript. I mean, Michael said a lot of stuff, um, good and bad, about himself, Joseph, and everybody else in the family. But he, you know, it was a good speech and it was for a good cause. It was overshadowed though by the drama because he showed up three hours late on crutches <laughs> doing... I, I don't know, doing that thing he did when he was in court, you know, when he was going to court, like acting like he was dying um, and he was just barely making it. Uh, so it, that was overshadowed the fact that this was a really good speech for a really good cause because the drama just seemed to to find its way. I mean, yeah, he, Michael was being Michael, but I mean, is it really, you know, overshadowed or was that just the media? Because I think it was just the media, but that's yeah, just my just opinion. Yeah, that's a great yeah. point. Yeah, I think it's that's actually a great speech. It's a good speech, and they wouldn't give him credit for anything because, like, when you think about it, by two, by the time he gave that speech, he knew Invincible was going to be coming out that year. He knew that probably because Sony said, "For real, dude, like for real, it's this year." So you need to get, you know. But this was kind of Michael's creative process anyway. The same thing happened with Thriller. The same thing happened with Bad. Like he's work. He's not happy until he's never happy, right? And it, he gets forced into a release date. And but at this point, he probably knew that was coming up. This helps to, you know, get him back out into the spotlight, you know, you know, do the kind of a reintroduction of himself. And, you know, yeah, he showed up on crutches. But like you said, Alicia, the substance of that speech was really high quality. But when you turn the TV on, it's like wacko jacko. Right. Uh, on crutches, and it's like, well, you're gonna talk about the speech or no? I remember during this period, and somebody else tell me if you if you do too. Just they they were so cruel to him. Like, you know, sometimes he did stuff and it was like, okay, I got it. You got to beat up on him a little bit. He shouldn't have done that, you know. But a lot of stuff was like, it was, it was, it was unnecessary. It's interesting. I don't remember like at the time that this happened, but like I revisited the speech today and I was really, I thought it was really heartfelt. And it was uniquely Michael. And I thought it was just really good. And I thought about like if social media was around at that time, I wonder if public perception of him would have been more positive than just having the mainstream's commentary. Yeah, I think it would have. The thing that's made itself apparent in revisiting Michael's speech is that he really thought about it before executing this, he wanted to use that platform to prove his theory. And a lot of people do that. Celebrities get that invite to the speaker series and they can either use it for something legitimate or they might go on a genius tangent and talk to you about something wild and crazy. Uh, You never really know what to expect, but looking at the Oxford moment for Michael, it was very well prepared. He came with tenants of, of security for childhood that he thought every child should have access to. Like Michael gave the speech. He might have gotten a little bit of coverage over it. It, it wasn't all over CNN or, um, or Fox News, but you certainly saw it pop up on news stations. But no one was really talking about the substance. It was more 
Michael's out. Michael gave a speech today. He's on crutches. This is what he had on. This is what he looked like. Pretty much during that time, it was pretty much everything. Every single thing Michael did was basically portrayed negatively, no matter what it was. So it was very frustrating at that time. I think Michael, at every turn, um, for as much as they wanted to criticize him, he was really constantly showing that he was not, it wasn't about himself, right? You give this Oxford, Oxford speech, it's not really about him. It's about kids. Like, you can see where his heart is. Um, and it's, everything is just turned into something odd. Um, but it was a really, I thought, a really nice um, introduction to that era, which eventually you get to that album, to give such a, a consequential speech in front of, you know, you know, people who are, are thinking and who are in the, you're in the space and in the room of people who can actually take maybe something that you say, like Ashley said, you can either talk about something of importance or yourself, because the people in this room can take some of that and you never know, use it to, to do some of the good you're talking about. And he took that opportunity to turn it on um, the least of these, you know, the least people in our society and that's children who need, you know, support and our help. Not just, you know, at the end of the day, he deserved more credit than I think he was getting. Um, MJ Fangirl, do you agree? Um, just what was happening, especially in the early 2000s, he wasn't getting um, what he wanted people to focus on. They didn't want to focus on. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think um, that's kind of, you know, what the gift and the curse of, of being Michael Jackson. Yes, all eyes were on him. But at that point, it was kind of like the media were calling the shots. Um, and I agree with what Alicia said earlier about there not being social media and there not really being any other way for us to consume the information other than what the news was reporting. You know, um, if, if it had been 2020, we would have somebody there that would have recorded the whole thing, you know, or, or Snapchatted part of it. So we would have at least been able to see the speech um, and kind of understand why Michael was there and kind of understand what he was doing with a lot of the things that he was trying to do in the early 2000s. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate. Um, you know, uh, it's one of those things that I look back on and I'm like, wow, Michael was really doing that in the early 2000s. So, yeah. And let me ask y'all this, this open question for the floor. So on our last episode, we talked about Randy and Randy in his posts, one of his posts tried to bring that, hey, quit listening to the media because they did this to my family. And just this conversation right here, it's like you take pieces, like he's not wrong um, from that angle. Like they they misconstrued a lot of things. Do you think it's fair to at least give him um, the, the floor to have that, that conversation about media manipulation? Um, because it, he's not lying. I think Invincible is a great era to say like, they just, you know, it, they felt it sold more papers to portray him as the ultimate, you know, weird person but he was doing some very substantive things that no other artists were doing at that time. And they just weren't being given the same amount of um, credibility and attention. I have a radical thought. Do you think the week he wrote and gave the Oxford speech that it's possible it's the same week that he may have been dealing with writing or singing The Lost Children? Oh, God. 
And here's why I'm asking. I'm an advocate for the lost children because it's a ridiculously, it's a ridiculously uh, dramatic song. And I could see Michael writing this heartfelt ass speech and then saying, we pray for our fathers. Like that makes fucking sense. Does it not? I'm not going to lie. I literally thought of the lost children when I was this is the precursor to the lost children none of us gave a hot damn about that oxford speech like i remember going back and reading it i definitely remember the pops of press coverage but i think michael wanted this to be his humanitarian bag and ultimately he was talking about kids again and didn't nobody want to hear that shit that's really what happened and this was the time when like everybody watched the vmas everybody watched you know like half of those award shows that i wouldn't dare sit down and try to sit through now but yeah i yeah. mean it was like he came out in the middle of instincts i mean the even the etch a sketch that made his like image and then it like I, I mean, it was awesome and it was the time that i was like oh my god mike's pretty dope you know what i mean <laughs> yeah that was that was a fun part like when if michael's singing and dancing he's oh got yeah. our, he's got our attention but this oxford speech <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I mean, honestly, I didn't even know about this Oxford speech until probably, I mean, it was, I knew about it, but I had never even cared to watch it. I was more into like, you know, the BET, um, where the BET awards with James Brown and like seeing him, um, just pop up, not even seeing him pop up randomly, but knowing that it was an option that he could perhaps do it. Those type of things caught my attention more so. Mm-hmm. And he did pop. He let me can let me just say this. He gave Insync the business because I listen. I remember watching that when he came out. I said, "Who are these white guys on the stage? <laughs> Why are they still here? Michael Jackson has arrived. Why are they here?" He gave his mess. Like Michael know. gave us twenty seconds of let's get serious. Right. <laughs> it wasn't even thirty. It was twenty. He what he come out he spin he, or he spun in a circle and then he sat down in that chair he it did a little everything pop yeah, he did oh dad he did give us a pop and a lot yeah like like am i the only one that was like jumping up in front of the t like am i the only one that would just go crazy when the dude would show up on tv back in the day because yeah you like you said we didn't have the internet to go oh let me go watch it again Again, it was like Michael's on right now. Yeah, girl, right now. I ran for my blank VHS tape. I popped <laughs> that thing in the. Uh, Did you, <laughs> you make it? Got to be ready. Those are the days. Those are the days where you keep the blank. Oh yeah, yeah. in the VCR. He also read because you was about to record over your mama's as the world turns. I mean, right. that didn't even <laughs> that's, a beat, right? that's a whole that's a whole ass whooping right there. Because her, <laughs> the we talked about the instinct uh, like surprise uh, at, at the two thousand one VMAs that was on September the sixth, and I and I say the dates because we all know that nine um, eleven was in two thousand one, um, and that's the day that you know we none of us will ever forget where we were, what we were doing when we heard or when we saw um, the footage. So the, the dates here I'm, I'm citing because I want people to understand because a lot of this has to do with the timeline for what Michael did after 9-11. Um, but we're going to get to the 30th anniversary. So first of all, the 30th anniversary, there were two shows. Um, one was on September the 7th, and that was the day after the VMAs. 
and the other one was on September the 10th. 2001. They were both at MSG, uh, Madison Square Garden in New York, and they were two sold out performances celebrating Michael's 30th anniversary of being a solo performer. Um, does everybody remember watching that? Like, like, do y'all remember watching the, the 30th anniversary special, like sitting in front of the TV? We taped it. Uh, sure Alicia, we had our tape ready, girl. Yes, we girl. <laughs> Me too. I remember going back and forth. So how many people here actually went? I did. MJ Fangirl. Tell us about it. How was it? Tell us about it. It was um it was amazing, but you know, one of the things that I always tell people is personally my favorite part of that was the Jackson's reunion. Um I felt like that was the most electrifying part of the night and like the most um the most exciting really. Um, Michael, Michael, seeing Michael was great, but seeing him with his brothers, it was like a whole new thing. Um, and, and probably because I grew up, you know, really loving the Jacksons and kind of admiring them as a family and being that all the siblings were so talented. So I loved that. Um, but I will say that it was a really long night. Like I think just being in the audience, we were there for almost like five hours, um, from like seven to no, it wasn't almost to 1am, maybe not, maybe till 11. Um, so my math is off, but, (laughs) um, it was just a long time, like in between people that would come on and like introduce him. And then, you know, all the other artists were doing their thing, but I think most people were there just for, you know, just for Michael. So that was a little daunting having to wait through everyone because you couldn't fast forward. <laughs> Which night was that? Uh, September 10th. So was it two shows or was it just one? Uh, I, only went to, I only went to September 10th. There were two shows. Um, the first one sold out and then the only show that I could get tickets to was the 10th. Got it. So yeah. you got to go to the absolute last performance. Yes, yes. I wow. feel really um, grateful that I was able to go. I went with my dad. He he is a Michael Jackson fan too. So we put in some work. Uh, we were we were on the house phone, the other fax line phone, the cell phone and uh AOL trying to get the tickets and um wow. it was tough. It was really tough. Wow. I just remember like, Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead, Lamont. Go ahead. Oh, I just remember just well I I regret it because I remember wanting to go so bad. And the tickets, if I remember correctly, were like two thousand to like ninety five dollars. I'm sorry, yeah. how many? I'm sorry, how many American? <laughs> there were two thousand dollars, and I did not. I'm sorry, comma zero 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 period. Yes, there were two thousand dollars, and I and I I couldn't afford that, so like I didn't I didn't want my first experience to see Michael Jackson to be in the nosebleed sections. So I didn't go. <laughs> and I regret that. But yeah. It was... I'm glad we have we have a rich friend. MJ fangirl. We gonna <laughs> right? I, I'm actually looking for my, the photo of my ticket now because I don't want to get up. But I think, we, well, we were actually in the nosebleeds to the point where like you could go up one step and there was the bathroom. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think my dad was going to pay any, any thousand dollars for us. <laughs> So I got to look back, but they were quite expensive, especially for that time. I mean, they were probably like $100 each, even being in the back, the yeah, very yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. $100 to put your back against the wall. That <laughs> is what we call a vibe. 
Did he show up with? Did he who did he went to the show with Elizabeth Taylor? Right, he didn't go with his brothers. No, they no. Didn't talk to, the he boys, the, the boys, they kill me for they like quit calling them the boys. The boys, uh, the boys showed up together. They showed up together, right? Brothers. Yeah, I just from I only thing I remember is Michael's shirt tucked into his pants, coming out of his zipper. Oh yeah, the zipper. Oh. No, it was a button. They were buttons. That's why he got tricked because he shouldn't have wore button pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where to, where does one get button pants. You have I got to a Michael pair. Jackson. I, I, I got a pair. I think I got them from H and M. It's a Wait. it's a setup. Don't do I used it. To have a, I, hate, I used to have button jeans. I remember. Yeah, that. that's what I mean. Mud it, jeans. Yes. I do remember those mud. Mud did put three right in the crotch. Yup, right yeah. in the crotch. Shout out to JC Penny. And he had leather. It was leather with buttons. Michael probably had him pants made. He was like, you know, what would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> leather pants with buttons straight down the front. Let's do it. Let's do and it. I, I won't forget to button it. Every time I watch the 30th anniversary back, I say the exact same thing. Michael with his brothers. There is no other like even like through the TV, you could feel like the electricity of him yeah. with his brothers. And so, like, no matter what like if whether he wanted to perform with them or not i mean it was just like as a fan it's incredible and i was just so excited to see them all together um even jermaine <laughs> like everybody <laughs> brandy hit them knees them knees hit that floor and not randy marlon i mean marlon marlon yeah, randy oh, ain't hit no knees randy ain't <laughs> Brandy oh, will run around with his shirt open with his chest out, but Marlon hit mm. that floor. Marlon was ready, okay? <laughs> yes, and you will be happy to learn that we did run down um, several flights to stand in, like, I don't know, the first mezzanine or something. Like, we went way down to watch nice. some of the show by the railing. So, okay, y'all, my kind of people. I don't care that this ain't the seats they gave me, I don't care about the little <laughs> Ursher. What the Usher gonna do to me? You need to go back on your <laughs> in the wrong place. I you know. I never went to a Michael Jackson concert, but I would think Usher's at a Michael Jackson concert got the hardest job on the planet because I give up. I mean, you can't stop that. If somebody wants to get to Michael, they're gonna get to Michael. Well, and the people fall out too. Like Michael said, like something like five thousand faints a night or something. Like I ain't lifting nobody up. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the job description. Must be prepared to lift at least three bodies a show. <laughs> This is a round robin right here. Best, what is your favorite or the best? Maybe it's not your favorite, but it's the best non-MJ performance of the 30th anniversary. It's, I think it's only fair to start with MJ Fangirl. So she saw everybody show up and try their best to cover his songs. Who did the best non-MJ? What was the best non-MJ performance? The best non-MJ performance. I'll be honest. Can I pick two or no? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so I enjoyed the intro that um it was Maya the night I was there it was Maya Usher and mm. one other person Whitney wasn't Whitney. there though oh. oh Whitney oh Whitney was only there on the seventh oh um I'm trying to think there was one more person or maybe yeah, who did her part did not know that I thought she was there both nights no she she wasn't there both nights but I remember that I loved um seeing Maya and them do that and then the next one Hmm. The next one, I think that Luther Vandross, mm. wasn't Luther Vandross mm-hmm. there? Mm-hmm. And I forgot who else he sang with, but I remember liking that performance. Who was he hanging out with? Uh, he was with Usher in 90. Uh, 98 90 degrees. 90, 90, yeah. 
Yeah, 94 degrees. I'm so mad they did that to Luther. Yeah, they needed to give him stronger people. I mean, Usher was fine, but 98 degrees was not. Absolutely not. Ugh, why? Were they the only people available? What was happening? (laughs) I feel like Nick Jay set that up. Do we really want to take the time to talk about Usher? Because uh, the way Michael tried to move that man off the stage. Yo, that's because yo. Usher was trying to dance a circle around Michael. And Michael I was, was like, so not angry. on my damn show. <laughs> I mean, he literally had to, like, get after that nigga. It was the most. I've never seen Michael be that aggressive, and it's not in a short film. No, I think his, his little beef with Randy over OPP was. Ooh. Which yeah, moment do you think was more irritating for him? I think that's a, a really good highlight to call out. Randy. <laughs> Randy. For Randy. Sure. It was mm-hmm. definitely Randy. Because he stopped dancing and everything. I mean, I think, the, <laughs> I think the mic dropped. I think he put the mic down a little bit. And I think he looked at it. He got that mama look real quick from Michael when you acting up in the store. The she up. Like, that's for sure. Destiny, what do you think? Best performance non-MJ of the 30th anniversary special? Um, I really like uh, Shaggy. I would say Destiny's Child and um, Can I Have Three? Yeah. And of course, you know, the want to be starting something with um, Whitney, Usher, and Maya. Yeah, yeah. When Whitney walked out there, I think people just didn't, they didn't know what to, that, they no way you saw her coming. Like, can't bitch, baby! They knew you didn't see <laughs> with her little church handkerchief in her hand. I said, you better do it, baby. Those are some good performances. Mike did Michael say like he loved, uh, you know, it wasn't me. And um, so that was kind of cool that Shaggy got to come do that for him. Um, mm-hmm. So, all right, Lamont, what was your favorite? Um, Usher, Maya, and Whitney, and um, Destiny's Child. That's everybody's favorite. When Whitney, Whitney's just, I mean, you know, she's just got that voice. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, everybody loves that one. And then you said Destiny. J- yeah, they did a good tribute to Michael. Yeah. With the glove, like Beyonce had the glove on and, you know, it was it was nice. It was nice. Um, Alicia, what about you? This is tough. I don't know why. I was just so anxious and annoyed throughout the whole thing. I just wanted to see Michael and his brothers. So no matter how fantastic people were, I just wanted them gone. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about how James Ingram was there? James Ingram? He oh, yeah. That song with, uh, who was he singing with? Gloria Estefan. Gloria Estefan, yeah. yeah. Yeah, lots of heavy hitters. Samuel L. Jackson was there hosting a, pe- a, a little bit. He did the opening, right? Yeah. Oh. Introduction, yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. What? This yeah. is all a blur. I literally have to look this up on Wikipedia. I'm like, Ray Charles was there? Like, I have no <laughs> 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 has anyone else, has any other artist had like a show like that since then? Like no. a legacy artist? No. No? Mm. Only Michael, right? Nobody's gonna do that. <laughs> Not on that level, no. No. I mean, Beyonce could try it, but Beyonce doesn't no. even want to do no shit like that. Michael <laughs> barely wanted to do uh, it. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Lamont, I don't want to get you riled up, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I don't even know why Michael did it. Was this like a commitment to Joseph or something? <laughs> like, what, what, how did this even happen? Mike, Michael did it because he made like $10 million on the show. That's why he did it. Yeah, Hello. I thought he did it because Sony was acting up and he said, well. I oh, need, yeah, that too. I need people to show me love. So let me throw my own party so they can buy the same album. 
Well, I mean, this was before he, well, Sony was acting up for a while, but I think he did it too for a promo for the album. Yeah. You know, exactly. he, I mean, remember at the end, he did You Rock My World and it was like, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Okay. Was he just exhausted by the time they got to You Rock My World or what? Because he sold it. But I think Chris Tucker really, had, if Chris Tucker hadn't walked out on stage, I don't know if Michael would let the song <laughs> fade out, answers. right? It was so random. I was like, okay. Well, I've well, I I watched the, you know, the extended version on YouTube or whatever, and I'm not sure which, did, did they use the version from the 7th or the 10th, but I know wh- whichever version that they didn't use looked like it was the better version. Mm. But I believe they used the version with him with the dancers and Chris and whatnot. But I believe whatever whichever version they, they didn't use didn't use was the best one to, in my opinion. So. Oh, I'm gonna look that up, Lamont. Well, that's, that's good to know. MJ Fangirl, I know you gotta I know you gotta bounce on us uh really soon here, if not right now. Quick question before you go and yeah. uh, and thank you so much for jumping on. Um you said the show lasted till like twelve, one o'clock. Did you rock my world come bouncing out at one AM? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? Okay, I think I'm pretty sure that it was not one. It might it might have been around midnight, but yeah, that was that was the last. Um, that was, that was the, the last, last song. Everybody's ready to go home. Well, I, I, you know, uh, that's kind of you know maybe drop that at the top. <clears throat> I know. I mean, I would have honestly preferred that. Um, I think that once he did, you rock my world. I don't know about everybody else, but I was kind of like all right, well, what's next? Like, it, it almost felt like that was like getting the party started, not like a last goodbye song. Were people walking out? You know how people do at the end of shows. Were people walking out when you were <laughs> working? Who's walking out on Michael Jackson? People who got to go to work in the morning. There were, okay, so I will be honest. There was one thing that I was totally, I was totally floored when I saw, I think there was a group of ladies who were there for either 98 Degrees or one of the other bands. Oh, no. And they actually got up and left before Michael even <gasps> came to the stage. You travesty. Really? That's the oh. It was a travesty. Were they all th- <laughs> but Michael got his money regardless. Were they all 13? <laughs> what, what was this? No, they were all like... Uh, I don't know. They were all, I guess, like, you know, 20s or maybe. Oh, no. You really hate to see that. Absolutely Um, not. Yeah. It it was obvious because as soon as their band stopped performing, they got up and left. I just can't remember who it was. But I was just thinking, like, are you guys crazy? (laughs) The (laughs) band didn't even leave. The band was still backstage watching. (laughs) Yeah. Who goes to a show for 98 Degrees? Uh, 98 Degrees don't even go to their own show. (laughs) They had had one hit back then like what okay. was it what was it what was it um i do see how y'all stretching for it what's the name of the song the only oh, song i remember that you? was the soundtrack with it's got to be una noche That's it was i thought it was all because of you y'all sing a little bit for me because i can't even recall <laughs> absolutely not. well the only 98 <laughs> degrees song that's the only one I know. Una noche. That's the Wait. only one I know. <laughs> All because of you. You're my sunshine after the rain. Okay, yeah. Okay. Oh, was that their first song? I think that was their first hit, yeah. Oh, that, wow. you have some ballads all the girls loved. 
My okay. sister used to be big on them white boy bands, and I just I was all over Michael. I could but not I was never it. a 98 degrees fan. I was in sync and backstreet boys. Like I was, I was so excited that in sync was on the show, but I was not here for 98 degrees because no. none of them can sing. Was Backstreet Boys on the show? Were they up there? T- I get them all. No, no. no them like, kids oh. was on tour. But O Town was in the audience. O-Town. Oh, I remember because oh, they were filming the show. <laughs> Lamont is like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley Angel. Yes. Yeah, that they were, I don't know. I'm just not, they they really are not good singers or dancers. But that was like the craze at the time. But, <laughs> you know, 98 degrees. No, thanks. No, no, thanks. MJ Fangirl, please say uh, all your farewells. And yes. gosh, your perspective from the show. Amazing insight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited. I'm super excited to share. Um, and yeah, hopefully everyone will give me a follow or at least look me up and say, hey, um, again, I'm on MJ Fangirl TV on YouTube and then also on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MJ Fangirl blog. So thanks everyone for having me. You guys are awesome. I love this podcast. User 1.5, where are we in the Invincible Timeline? Let's go in the Invincible Timeline. So we're going to pivot. Hold on a second. Wait a minute. I got 60 seconds. I need a timeout. Was Diana Ross at that show? (gasps) No. No. Oh, my God. I never noticed that. (laughs) (laughs) We might have forgotten, but the digital enhancement that went on for Michael and for Whitney... The Whitney thing where Whitney was so thin that they had to do it for her. I didn't know that apparently they tried to digitally enhance Michael's features. In hindsight, I do remember his it being kind of a weird glow, but I couldn't tell if that was the spotlight or what. But have y'all heard that? Well, I've you know heard that about Michael. Well, I, I've heard that, but you know. I, that's pretty commonplace now in in terms of of, of videos and whatnot for you know major artists. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 in my opinion, even though it was done, but I think it was just Michael was the first one to use that type of technology, mm-hmm. and now it's kind of commonplace now. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, that feels right. It feels like it was like a a tool that you could use because we were in that transitioning to that HD era. Yeah, and it was like the first time that we were seeing things very yeah. crispy on TV. Yeah. And I'll say this too, like with Whitney, um, because she was very, she was obviously very thin. I think that was the first shock piece when you saw her come out. Yeah. But then her voice was so strong. It's like, what is going on here? Yeah. But I think it kind of sunk in for me about Michael for real. Like I, it wasn't until he died that I really started dealing with the idea that he had an, an addiction to, to, to uh, prescription drugs yeah. or, you know, you know, doctor administered, not street drugs, doctor administered drugs. And, but when she gave that interview with Diane Sawyer and she said, I knew Michael was on it because I was on it. And I knew, cause I could, that I think was when it sunk for me because people who are deep into that, you know, they recognize it in other, they recognize it, you know, and other people. And when she talked about that, I was like, oh yeah, it was, must've been bad. She said, you know, I looked at him and I knew because I was in the same position, you know? Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking about when we mentioned Diana Ross, because I don't know if that was a David guest vibe that he was a bit of an enabler because, because he was clearly enabling Liza to a certain extent. Um, but I just felt like between Elizabeth and Liza, they might have been in a weird codependent triangle at that moment. Michael and who? 
uh, Michael, Liza, and Elizabeth Taylor. And now I know Elizabeth Taylor took, right? I know she took him to rehab. So I, you know, I'm, it, it just seemed like a weird codependent triangle with David Guest at the helm because I think he directed the whole thing. So I don't know. It just makes me feel uh, or look twice at what they were all doing at that point. There were a lot of enablers in Michael's life at that time. They were, you know, y'all talking about Rabash, Smoothie, and Ugh. Yuri Gill. I, I remember back then, because I was on the, the message boards at that time, like, the was a KOP discussion. KOP board. Yeah, and we were just like, why is this person in Michael's life? Like, we, like, we all knew that this person was, like, garbage, but, and it was like a revolving door of people that Michael shouldn't have had in his life. It's like, oh, Lord, Michael, but, yeah. Yeah, that felt true. And let me ask this, Destiny, because I know you're like knee deep in it. Um, David Guest knew Michael from when they were like he's been around for literally decades, like when they were kids. Am I wrong about that? Like he's known Michael and his family. They've known like intimately known each other for 50, like at that point, you know, 30, 35, 40 years. Am I wrong? I think he's been around for a while, but honestly, I'm really not sure. <laughs> it's like, there's a few people in Michael's life where I like, I see them, but I'm like, okay, bye. I don't, <laughs> know, like, I don't know if David Guest went to school with them when they first got yeah. out there. I think, th- I think they knew him for a while, though. He yeah. said they went to school together. And when you hear David Guest tell the story, he made it seem like Michael Jackson was his best friend in middle right. school. Yeah, we know that's a lie. You know, know, a lot of people who worked with Michael or, you know, knew him, they they always seem to make it like they were Michael's best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Who was managing Michael at the time? I had asked 1.5 this, but I don't know if she ever found the answer. Who do, does anybody know who was managing him or was he free falling? I did find the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Stuart Beckman or Dieter? Dieter Beckman. Dieter Beckman. Who was that? Was he German? Oh, oh yeah, because I remember oh, Sam. Is it? Oh. Sam. You went to that porn. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Lord, this is terrible. D- D- uh, what is his name? Dieter is a scam artist too. So yeah, what did he? Definitely he, both scammers. Let's what Google. Scamming, yeah, what was Dieter scamming on? I'm about to Google it because I really don't remember. Because Michael really did have a lot. It was a lot of weird people around him at yeah. this time. That's the one thing Debbie and Lisa Marie said that is consistent on point they both said it michael was surrounded by people who were just there to take advantage of him yeah and he i don't know he could not break free but i knew it wasn't raymond bain she doesn't come in until what we would call maybe the this is it era yeah like 2000 i thought she was she came in like 2003 ish yeah she was i think she is a result of invincible flopping and Michael saying, I need to pivot this. Because it was, I think it was, uh, how, do you, how do you pronounce the name? Dieter? It was yeah. Dieter, uh, Stuart Backman, and then Ramon Bain, I think. I think that's how it went. And I think, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Lamont. Um, I'm sorry, I no, think, go ahead. I think Dieter also sued Michael back in 2005. I'm not sure. This has been so long, I haven't looked any of that up. But I just wanted to sue Michael. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, Dieter was definitely a skeevy guy. And I'm trying to do a quick Google to like remember what the hell his backstory is. And all I can find are stories about him trying to hawk some tapes that he has recordings of Michael and he wants to write a book. And that was this year. So Dieter? Oh wow. Yeah, that's Dieter like in 2020. This was in February. He was he's trying to sell some shit based off of what he's stolen from Michael. Mm. Yeah. All right. One point five. I just want. I want. I really wanted to know about Diana, and um, I. St- I guess we still don't know what was up with that. When we guess when we get her on the show, she can talk about it a little bit. Um, why? Hey, you Diana, know, what- if you're listening, we have a <laughs> lot of things to ask you. That is one of them. She could have just been busy, and I get it. You know, it might have been you know Wellness Wednesday for her, and she was, the 30th anniversary special was was a, was a huge deal. Um. I, we all taped it, watched it. MJ Fanger was there. Lucky her. Um, and then 9-11 happens the day after the, the concert on the 10th. Now, we've all heard all these stories about, you know, whether or not Michael Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor went riding cross country um, after uh, after the, the towers were hit. That, they did. They did. <laughs> that That <laughs> is what it is. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention, um, cause I really want to get to the problems with Sony, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention the one more, um, sorry, not one more chance. Ooh, that's a lie. The, uh, what more can I give you now that we stay in concert? So R- Michael was so touched, um, and really wanted to do something to give back that he put together this benefit concert. It was the third national concert, um, after 9-11, it was October the 21st, 2001 at RFK Stadium in DC. Mm-hmm. And uh, because Michael was under contract with CBS um, to show the 30th anniversary special, because that didn't air until November, um, he actually could not perform any of his songs or really be in any way associated with the, the show um, because it, it aired on ABC. Yeah, I was at the concert. Oh, tell us, tell us. Oh, wow. Destiny, you like, out. It was 14 hours that I was there. <laughs> oh, wow. No, are you serious? Or was that an exaggeration? I thought you were joking. No, it was 14 hours because everybody started standing in line, I want to say around nine. I got in, I think we rolled up around maybe 11 o'clock. And actually, for it to be 9-11, security was pretty smooth, but they did. But you couldn't really bring anything in. So, What did you eat for dinner? I'm concerned. Did you uh, have dinner? Well, I'm just going to say probably around (laughs) noon. I ate once. So from noon up until Michael came out on stage around midnight, I didn't eat anything. And then the concession stands, they ran out of food anyway. No snacks. Oh, my God. The session stands ran out of food and water. No snacks, no snacks, no meat, no water. No, 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 nothing. So what do you remember, Destiny? What do you remember most about the show? Um, Other than Michael, I know Michael did What Man in the Mirror and then What More Can I Give? Um, If he did another song, please let me know. Um, But what do you remember most about the show other than Michael? Like the, the vibe, the atmosphere? Um, well, during that time, as far as D.C. goes, you know, after 9-11, I just, you know, remember the, you know, feeling of togetherness, you know, and people wanting to be there for the cause, you know, um, performance type wise. And this really wasn't performance, but it's funny because I went to the show with my mom and then 
I had a friend who was, um, she was disabled, so she couldn't get down on the floor. So I actually had tickets in two sections, her section, and then I had floor seats. So I stayed with my friend, like, duration, like, you know, because I didn't want to leave her, but she knew I was going to leave when Michael <laughs> came on. So um, I remember uh, being with her and Usher just coming out in the in the bull pit because it was really hot under the RFK stadium because um, my dad is a cop. So I, I've been under that thing like a million times. So I know that it's hot under. And so Usher came out in the bull pit to talk on his cell phone, knowing he would cause a ruckus. And all I remember are girls like trying to jump into the bull pit with him, hanging over the thing, all while he's just sitting there casually on his phone. So that's probably, aside from Michael, the most memorable memory from that concert. Wow. And then I did love seeing James Brown perform. James Brown performed at that? Oh, yeah. It was a a really big, big, I mean, legends were there. Al Green was there, Goo Goo Dolls, Aerosmith. I mean, it was a lot of... I saw Al Green. Yeah, Al Green and James. What did James do? What did Uncle James do, please? Somebody tell me. I can't tell you all the song right now. Because like I said, that day was a blur. Almost like MJ Fangirl with the 30th anniversary yeah. special. I know he did like a, a melody of his... Uh, of his song? Of his song. Yeah. And also I said, the reason why it took them so long to set up the stage and take it down is because all the performers that perform everybody used their own band. So that was the thing that took time to set up and bring up, you know, bring down each different band for the performers. Let me ask y'all this. Who else besides Michael Jackson could get Aerosmith and James Brown (laughs) and Destiny's Child? And and, like, man, that's just crazy. First of all, I mean, for James Brown to come to Michael's show to do that for Michael says something about James Brown um, because, you know, it ain't the other way. Like Michael, Okay, we we always got to remember who learned from who, but you know James Brown said, you know, God bless the child who's got his own because Michael went and made it his own. But we we remember Michael's Michael's so honest, just not an egomaniac as an as an artist to say, you know, I wanted him to show his feet. I was watching at the foot of the stage. I was trying to see what he could do because I wanted to learn how to do it. And like I just love their little their little love connection throughout their whole boat. All of James Brown's life, that love can I just love that relationship that they had. Like it was just beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, here's the the cool thing about the concert, right? Was that all of the proceeds went to the 9-11 attack um survivors, uh their heroes, their families, um, the heroes and their families and the um survivors' families. And it, it was just a, like Destiny said, it was a time that I think we all can remember when I don't ever remember feeling more unified as a country than after uh, 9-11. And I think we all felt that because we were all very, um, it was a shock, it was shocking, right? Um, And nobody was expecting it. Um, We got What More Can I Give, which is a really good song. Um, from this show, Michael re- recorded it with all these artists, um, and Sony refused to release it as a single because the proceeds were not going to go to Sony. They weren't going to make any money off of it. Um, and so I think that's a good segue into Michael's issues with Sony. 
Well, time out. Let's just take a rewind back and talk about what more can I give? Am I the only one? I really feel this was Michael's most important humanitarian song, maybe aside from Man in the Mirror. Like, you know, self-reflective, let's care about other people. This might have been his most just as to me, maybe equally to man in the mirror because of the time that it came out, the reason it came out and the number of people who gave freely of their time, artists who gave freely of their time to get it done. What do y'all think about that song? Let's be clear. They didn't play it on the radio. They didn't play it on TV. They didn't play it in the grocery store. Well, it wasn't released. It was not released as a single. That's the whole point. It couldn't, it didn't get, it didn't get, it didn't get a chance to be popular because Sony said, we're not releasing it. And so it didn't get that opportunity. But regardless of whether it went that far, I'm talking about the art that was created, the importance of it and what it, what its intent was, I think was very important. Even though at the end of the day, Michael can't control the bureaucracy at Sony who says, Hey, we're not going to release your song that literally a list artists came together to do this and they trashed it. They put it in the trash can. Yeah, I think Michael was trying to be a patriot. And at that point, Sony had already dug their heels in. They weren't going to give Invincible any more money. They weren't going to give this any money. They weren't going to give Michael any more money. They wanted the other half of that catalog. Well, Sony is not a patriot because Sony is not owned by U.S., um, by Americans. Is that what we're saying? No, we're just saying that Sony was being a corporation and didn't give a shit about you know, the fact that the country needed healing and needed this expression of art. Um, They just were in the business of icing Michael Jackson out. So he he didn't do this in the Oxford speech, but user 1.5, let me know in the timeline. By this point, he's already dragged them, right? Or are we on the way to him going to Harlem to drag them? We are well on our way. He has not dragged them. He doesn't drag them until 02. Okay, so this is probably what question. made him do it. Yeah, so why did they not... Pro- he hadn't even called the man the devil yet. So why... why they don't, the budget. The budget. I, I, I have a theory, and y'all can just tell me if it's wrong. So as any artist that's doing a deal directly with the company, the way that he was doing business with Sony, keep in mind he owns that catalog off to the side. That has nothing to do with his contract, which was, I don't know how many albums Michael had left at that point. Maybe he was under a 10 album deal. And this is number seven. He said he only had one album left. Mm-hmm. So it must've been an eight album deal. Um, so at this point he knows he's on the way out the door and Sony knows that as well. So there, there is no return for them after they've spent as much money as they spent on you rock my world. And, in their eyes, if it wasn't an immediate return, then they're not going to invest anymore uh, for Michael to have to pay them out of his earnings because it's not trending towards an earning where they would get that money back. He spent millions on that um, on that on your Rock My World the video and hated it. It's that, and it's that, and I think they were trying to cripple Michael for financially to make him sell the catalog. I think that's what it was really about. Yeah, because at that point they really didn't have an angle to get it. Because yeah. he didn't have there, he he was as far as we knew, he was in good financial standing. There was nothing to lev. He didn't need to leverage anything. So I don't know if maybe in this moment that might have forced him into investing in himself more. 
And at that point, that's putting him at a disadvantage. And that's kind of how he starts that slip and fall into needing to leverage his catalog. Yeah. And, and I want to point out, I mean, you, you might bring it up, you might have would have brought it up a little bit later, but he was planning to put out uh, Unbreakable was, was going to be the first thing. He wanted to do a, a short film for that, but, you know, that didn't happen. And I'm mad about that because that's like one of my all-time favorite MJ song, so mine too, yeah. Lamont, mine too. And he was the the video concept was something crazy, like he was gonna die and then come back in a flame or something like that. But he wanted, <laughs> but y'all weren't ready for that, no way. So it's good thing it didn't. None of us were. None of us were. Is but this he, what the? Is that what they said he he said he was gonna do? Yeah, it was something crazy, like like he was gonna get killed. What? Well, then, didn't he have to die so he could find Biggie? Is that what yes, that was? And then what? Yeah, that was the concept. He was gonna come back in a flame or something like on a chariot, like like what's man in the Bible? Y'all help me. Uh, he was Ezekiel. No, Ezekiel saw the wheel in the middle of the air. Then he was gonna do this like dope dance number about how he was unbreakable. Like that was the concept of the video. And when Sony told him no, he was like, "Well, I'll pay for it." And they were like, "Nah, you're doing. Uh, you rock my world." Yeah. Yeah, I mean that would have been a gem though. I mean, I, I don't know. I low key want to see how that would have. I think about to drop something in there. Yeah, and then they Sony removed like Michael off of their high priority list of people like artists they were promoting at that time. I don't know. Did they? They did. I to believe so. But it seemed like it. Yeah. Oh yeah, they pulled all promotion. They everything that Michael wanted to do, they were like, nope, nope, nope. They wanted to release butterflies. He didn't like butterflies. They released what? what? I'm sorry. He what? Oh, he geez. didn't. He didn't really. He didn't think that it was gonna be a, a good. It was a good single, right? Because he was still stuck on Unbreakable. And well, wait a minute. Did he say that? He probably did. Yeah. He, he probably did because he was wrong. That well, was you know, strongest songs he had. Rodney Jerkins just did his series of interviews with Vlad and those are up on YouTube and I'll link them in the show notes. But he did very clearly mention that Michael had a whole treatment for Unbreakable and that was what he wanted to start with. And well, to come on our show first and foremost <laughs> and not, I mean, whatever the other, I mean, that's cool or whatever, but I'm saying, did he really like down? Like, first of all, anybody seen Flowetry Live? I have. And like, first of all, I mean, Marsha and the the lyricist, what's her name? Natalie, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, doesn't matter because like, she ain't in Flowetry no more. Well, she, yeah, well, yeah, they're not Flo-Tree. together. I don't think they're together anymore. When I saw them, I think it was just her coming back to hang out with Marsha, but I don't think they were together no more like that. But like, they are still, like the like lyrically, Butterflies is one of the best lyrically driven songs on that whole album. Not even talking about the music, which is again top tier. Like, what was he not smelling about that song? But he really wanted us to hear the lost children. It was probably more so to do with the fact that that wasn't what he wanted out at that point. He wanted, you know, yeah. un- Unbreakable and, you know, whatever whatever else he had planned. He didn't want Butterflies at that, at that point and they were going against his wishes. And that was, that was probably more so it because I... I believe he really liked the song. So I remember he talked about it. I remember on the Steve Harvey show. I think Lamont is right. He probably just had tunnel vision and was like, "That's all he could think about was unbreakable." You just butt hurt. Well, listen, it wasn't gonna happen, Jack. 
<laughs> you have to think about the name of the album. He called it Invincible. He's got this really aggressive cover. He wants to keep that vibe. And they were just like, no, give us this love song. And Michael didn't want to sing a love song. That well, and you also have to, to sing a love song. <laughs> but you also have to remember that, I mean, Michael is the biggest artist in the world. And he's used to basically having creative control over his projects. And they're basically taking that away from him. So he's not going to take that well. So, yeah. Yeah. Definitely he needed to stop this madness. He needed that love song. Right. He was supposed to do a video for Butterflies, but him and Sony couldn't agree about it again, so it got dropped. Why he was so disagreeable? Or was it Sony that was disagreeable? It's I Sony. It well, I mean, Lamont just said he's used to getting his way, so it sounds like Michael he is. But you have to think about how this contract started. You come to CBS as, you know, originally you come to cbs records for creative control so you've done uh five to six albums with your brothers you're now on your seventh album you got one album left on the contract and then you can do whatever the fuck you want and you already own the most powerful music catalog in the world they basically stripped him of everything that he had off the wall like how you gonna tell me me i got less say so than i did on my first album well let me play devil's advocate since i I, let me introduce this idea and y'all just anybody how is sony the bad guy when they spent 30 million dollars well you're you're the bad guy if you if the artist is saying i I would like to do this with the project and okay the the prior the, the project prior to that so what 30 million. I mean, the double CD history, so 30 million. So he's proving himself that, I mean, he, you know, he's going to get the sales and he's saying, okay, I would like to do this. And you're stopping him. Why would you do that? And he's, he's in what, four or five decades in, into the game and you're not giving him his, you know, his creative say in what he wants to do with his own project. That's not, yeah. I mean, yeah, they spent $30 million, but you you spent $30 million and then you're trying to control the project and how he wants to put it out, his vision for the project. And he's already proven himself that he can bring in the numbers. Yeah, they weren't like, oh, let's spend $30 million on Michael's project. They weren't happy about spending that much money. Michael and Michael... Um, you know, because it's supposed to be released in 99. wasn't released till 2001. So, I mean, he got a... I mean, and then the last song that was actually put on the album was Those Lost Children. So, you know, <laughs> <they weren't, laughs> Found them. We found them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they weren't like, oh, good, let's spend 30 million on Michael. They were like, God, he's already cost us 30 million. Now we're going to tell him what to do. And I totally agree with Lamont. You can't give him creative control over, and then at the end say, nope, we're going to tell you what to do. But, okay, but at this point, we also have different leadership at Sony. We had Yetnikoff in the 80s. We got Matola now. Everybody knows it's like when you're working for a company and it merges with another company and the other company was the bigger company and you was a part of the little company. Every All the leaders at the bigger company going to keep their title. And that's your new boss, okay? Yeah. And all your old bosses that you knew, they're getting fired, matter of fact. And it's a new day. It's a new leadership. So he had a new leadership that maybe did not want to go with what had been done in the past. Well, and, and, and and I mean, I'm just wondering how that plays into the reality too. Because was, was Matola in when he, when he did history? I don't know. Because uh, M- Michael spent $7 million on the screen video and it yeah. was very successful. So why wouldn't they give him... Why wouldn't they... 
why wouldn't they either support him or if Michael wanted to spend the money on his own, why wouldn't they let him put the put the the project together on his own to do it the way he wanted to do it? And if it then wasn't successful, then say, okay, we're taking the, the reins of this project and you have to follow us from here on out. I mean, that would make sense. But because that- he was a psychopath. <laughs> well, there you go. Ooh, so wait a minute, who? Matola. Tommy Matola. Oh, Matola. Tommy Matola is hired by Walter Yetnikov in 1988. So he's been through some Michael Jackson eras and he knows how it goes itself. So, so it, is this his opportunity to say, I'm stacking my evidence? Michael has had uh, declining sales. Michael has had scandal, major scandal. Yes, he's had some high points in that, but I'm stacking my evidence. We need to take creative control of Michael Jackson in order to have success. But he's you- still a top selling artist. He had the highest grossing um, tool of the 1990s, and we're in 2001. When, when right, I'm I'm asking, do you think that's a potential to why they took the path they did? Because yeah. I agree with Lamont, like. He's he's shown you all these different things, but still you're going different. And why is that? Because, okay, Dangerous Tour had to be cut. They had already spent a lot of money. That's a loss, right? We're going to call the Dangerous part a loss because he had to stop touring, which is where a lot of the money would have came for. Record sales went down after, after the allegations hit. He had to deal with this whole thing. Then he comes back with the History album, which we we know got no corporate sponsors. It was completely funded by the record label. And I, I don't know if Michael funded it as well, but they got no corporate sponsors because of everything that had happened. He's a big investment that we know can pay off, but we don't want to trust him with execution at this point. They thought they were going to be left holding the bag and he was going to dip. And they were. They spent $30 million and made, what, to date? Maybe 10 15 But I don't think that they liked the, the project itself. They wanted Butterflies released. They wanted You Rock My World. They wanted Cry. Um, like really safe sounding kind of vintagey Michael songs. Like you're talking about Unbreakable. That I mean, just the beat alone is very different than anything else he had done before. I don't think they really liked the project. I don't think they cared much for um, the production of the album. Honestly, they didn't think it would sell. I don't think they thought it would sell. Yeah, but regard. I mean, even if they had their feelings, they shouldn't try to sabotage him. You know. Well, I mean, yeah, totally. that's somebody. Well, if if you don't, I'm sorry. Because they were doing a lot of stuff. Because I remember back in the day, like when the album came out, like the album was selling out in stores. Because I mean, I was on the forum back then, and like they were refusing to replace like the shipments. But I also think a lot had to do with his ATV catalog. Like they were pigeonholing him so that they could get, you know, the whole thing. Well, why? I'm just. uh, Why would you spend thirty million dollars if you don't think the project is coming together? Like, that doesn't really make sense. That's a really good question. I think they knew the, the potential. Yeah, I think they knew the potential for uh, for for them to get that ROI, that return on their investment was there because it was Michael. And so he's already shown many, many times that that, that earning potential is there. I don't think they trusted him anymore with the execution of how to get to that earning power what? because of all that had happened. I, I don't know. I'm thinking like, why would you take such a such a conservative stance with him? Like, no, 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 no. Like, they knowed him more than they ever yesed him. So I'm like, did they just not trust him anymore to execute to profit? I, I, I would agree with that if 
the history album hadn't been like massively successful. Like it was mm-hmm. mass, it was truly massively successful. So why wouldn't they trust him with that? I mean, well, and if you yeah, go to Michael's, Michael's speech on Tommy Mottola, um, which you can go online and read it, um, basically what he was saying, uh, other than the fact that he said that Tommy Mottola was racist and devilish, he said that he felt like um, they were upset because he was going to be a free agent. He only owed them one more album, and it was supposed to be a box set or something he had said, and it was he had already recorded it. Yeah. That and so I think that in Michael's mind, it was because he was going to be leaving, so they were basically trying to sabotage his last project because he was not going to be signing with Sony again. And that's from Michael's mouth, so maybe, maybe that is what it is. Maybe that's it. Maybe he, I believe that I can hear him, but then I heard Al Sharpton uh say he wasn't gonna co sign some of the stuff he said about Tommy Matola and that he had never known Tommy Matola to be a racist and all sorts of but that from a very strictly business standpoint, why would they sabotage their own investment? They're in the business of making money, exactly. So it kind of is like, Michael, I hear you. But it sounds like they stopped promoting you, not because they don't want to make the money, but because you pissed on their shoe. Well, you have you have 30, 30 million, you lose 30 million, but you gain what 2.1 billion with the catalog. So yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that goes into some other conspiracy theories about how to how he ends up uh you know dead, you know. But yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think there's something else going on here. Like I don't know if it was a concerted effort to sabotage because you did have the 30th anniversaries where, which were put on in part to 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 promote the album. You had the album, you had a single. We also know that Michael was struggling at this time. I think he really wanted to support Invincible. But we also know he was struggling at this time with his own personal issues. I think I think I don't want to I guess I look at it like this way. And this is probably the lawyer in me. Both sides normally have some piece of truth. Hmm. Now, how that weighs is a whole nother story. But I, I think that there may be something from Sony's perspective that is legitimate And then there are a lot of things from Michael's perspective that were definitely legitimate. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm not going to get on TV and call my boss a devil. Um, mainly because I just don't think it's going to give me anything less than a headache moving forward after I do that. And, you know, to call someone a racist and to call someone a devil and then to have a top, black civil rights icon coming behind you and say, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I don't agree. That's not a good look. Um, And that's what happened with that sort of commentary. But I think Michael felt very free to do whatever he wanted, a la the baby over the balcony, that sometimes he didn't stop to think, even if this is how I'm feeling in the moment, should I make this move? And I think once he said that about Tommy Mottola, it was like, they dead at him so fast if he wasn't dead before, if his album wasn't gone before, it was it was over. Oh yeah, he didn't stand a chance. I think Michael took a hit, you know, with the fact that he knew that by him speaking out that it was basically going to there was no hope for the project. But at the, at the end, he went out because Tommy was basically kicked out. He Tommy was kicked out what two thousand three. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, so he basically he still went out. I mean, he he took a hit, but he went out. So. Yeah, he got out of there. I mean, like, 
he was done with them. And, you know, that's why I think it was very hurtful to see his estate kind of go back. It's like <laughs> this man literally was done. And, um, and, you know, to go back is just kind of crazy. And that's why the conspiracy theories are alive and well, not to mention there is like legit evidence, but for to know that Michael really was happy to be rid of Sony and then for his estate to go back to Sony is like, hmm. yeah, that's, it was a huge slap in the face. Yeah. That's a huge slap in the face. Something else. Yeah. But yeah, but um, use one point five roll us on to I guess it's what living with Michael Jackson. Living with Michael, that is a oh, great thing. We need a whole said, baby dangling. <laughs> yeah, we do. We need an entire podcast on living with Michael Jackson. However, we're going to allocate just a few minutes today for first to get out our basic point. So, uh, Alicia, why are you sighing? <laughs> <laughs> Living with Michael Jackson aired in the United States on uh, February 6, 2002. Uh, This is here. um, That's a whole other situation to unpack. But he interviewed Michael from May 2002 um, until January 2003. he spent time at Neverland, uh, the Bambi Awards, which was in Berlin, Germany, uh, where Michael won a humanitarian award. That's also where the famous Baby Gate dangling incident happened. Um, and he also spent time with him. I don't know if you guys remember in Las Vegas, shopping and pointing at stuff and being like, oh, yes. one of these, one of these, one of these, one of these. Classic. Um, <laughs> that was, I mean, epic. I mean, my favorite scene is when he's like just pointing to stuff. Do we have one of those? Let me get one. <laughs> <laughs> when when that man said you <laughs> so it, it was a really big deal because this is kind of the catalyst for his second set of allegations um because of the the some of the things he said some of the things he did uh in the interview so i just want to kind of unpack it a little bit I want to start with Alicia. What do you think about living with Michael Jackson? What was your reaction? Did you watch it? You know, that was, what year did that come out? I think I was 16. It aired in 2003. Okay. I might've been in my senior year or junior year of high school. Um, This is the first time in my life I ever turned off the TV that had anything to do with Michael. Um. So I watched some of it. Please unpack that because I want to know if you were ready to turn it off. I didn't turn it off, but I was ready to at one point. I turned it off. Something in me, I just felt everything was off. Um, Michael was off for reasons that I couldn't allow myself to consider at the time. Bashir's commentary was terrible. And when I saw Michael holding Gavin's hand and mm. him leaning on Michael, yeah. my blood froze because yeah. I knew yeah. in that moment that things were going to get bad. Yeah. And I was furious with Michael for being mm. so oblivious. Mm. And I just cut the damn TV off. I was so mad because I knew, I knew badness was going to happen. And obviously, it did. So. What did you What did you think about uh, Barbara Walter? She had me increasingly angry as the. Night oh went. Lord! I don't even remember. <laughs> I honestly, I legit don't remember that part. Um, 
Her narration was so she wasn't important, but it's the words bizarre. It was y'all yeah. said her narration was so bad. Like yeah. it the narration, all of it was terrible. Yeah. yeah. I didn't watch I didn't watch that special from beginning to end until after Michael died. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like I was like that air, like this whole air, like once it got to this point, my memories had faded because I, I was just emotionally distressed from all of it mm. and I couldn't handle what was going on anymore so my memories are really spotty mm. at that time and with this interview like I know I said and we said it before but like if we all as teenagers could look at the tv and say Michael this is not a good idea where the hell Right. The people around him that were like, cut the camera, cut the mic, turn it Dead off. Ass. We're not <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where were those people in the room when he was sitting there talking to Martin Bashir? And Martin Bashir's commentary was was off too, right? Like he would say, Oh, oh yeah. so you sleep with children in your room? Like it, it, the way like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, Yeah, it's loving. I give him cookies and milk. And <laughs> <laughs> I Give a little cookie. I, I mean, I wanted a cookie, honestly, but oh, oh God. Cookies, I don't need a snack. Lives. That it lives rent free. I'm thinking sexual. They make that sexual. It's not sexual. But we're going to sleep. I tuck them in. We put. I put a little like uh, music on and do a little story time. I read a book. It's very sweet. We put the fireplace on. We give them hot milk. You know, we have little cookies. It's very charming. That whole interview, like, like I really didn't enjoy Barbara Walters. I didn't enjoy Martin Bashir. But I think there was a very pointed question at one point. And Michael said, so do you think, uh, Bashir said, so do you think it's okay if I'm a grown man and I have a daughter and I have her daughter, her, my daughter's friends over for a sleepover and I sleep over with them? And he said, yeah. Um, <laughs> Now, I know, I, I, oh, I shouldn't say I know. I think I can surmise that Michael really um, experienced that from an, a place of innocence, but didn't understand how the larger community objectively would view that sort of situation. Do you think it was sort of an interview that did not take into account the um, <laughs> mental, uh, the mental state of a Michael Jackson sort of person? Well, I think, I think two things. Uh, I think Michael was approaching it from a place of defiance. I, I didn't, I didn't do this, so I'm not going to change who I am. So I think yeah, that's I where he was coming from. So it, it was, it, it was probably a little bit of naivete and you know whatever other issues he had, but it was also that like I'm not going to change who I am because I didn't do this. So it was that. And also, like once again, like I remember being on the the you know the, the the forums back then, the KLP discussion, and we were like, "Why is he doing an interview with Martin Bashir?" Like we all knew it was going to be bad before it even happened. Before we got a clip, we knew it was going to be bad, and we were like, "Who who?" Well, y- y'all said it was Dieter was his manager, right? Mm-hmm. So we all knew it was going to be bad. It was like, why? Did, why did who signed off on allowing Michael to be interviewed by him because we knew it was going to be bad? So yeah. I think that well, was a Yuri, wasn't that a Yuri Geller recommendation? Yeah. Well, I thought Michael wanted to do it because Diana had done it, and we know that's he a whole mess right now because we're finding out that Martin Bashir manipulated Di- um, Princess Diana and yeah. in getting her interview. I mean, like deep manipulation. It sounds like he did. Like, 
a whole bunch of crazy stuff. And so Michael felt it was safe to do because she had done an interview with him. Probably, probably. And that goes right back to what Lamont was saying. There's a naivety there that why? Like, there has to, you can say Michael Jackson lived in a Michael Jackson bubble and that's fine. But mentally, like, there is an arrested development, as Brooke Shields would say about Michael. There is a disconnect Mm -hmm. where he's not understanding how that looks to everybody else. And again, he thinks he hasn't done anything. So there was something there that we'll never be able to unpack because we're not therapists. But (laughs) Michael was just completely oblivious. He had no clue. And again, we're teenagers watching this. And every last one of us cringed. And I don't know where your parents were in the house, but we had every TV in the house on watching this. And I just remember looking at my mom and my mom was like, yeah, that's not great for Michael. Alicia, do you think that he thought this was going to be another Oprah situation where it turns out really well, like the interview goes really well? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and he was so much more open than he was with Oprah so that's what like it really was Michael was just not thinking like anything he said was problematic or would be perceived as problematic so in his mind he's being open this is my house this is everything and he really thought like this is going to change everything for me for the better and it did not that's how I took it yeah Bashir aside Michael told a lot of half-truths and untruths in this interview. And he kind of got caught up in a couple of them. Like, you know, when he said that, uh, you know, that he didn't have a relationship with Blanket's mom, that she was a surrogate. And then, like, Martin Bashir asked him about it later. And he was like, oh, yeah, well, we were in a relationship. Like, which one is it, Michael? You know, um, it was just some. sometimes he would get caught up in stuff. I I just think that was Michael. I think he was used to telling his version of the truth uh, whenever it suited him, you know, to tell it. But, I mean... Even in the 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 baby gate dangling incident, you know what I mean? Like, like that was all Michael. That was Michael in Berlin. The fans are down, uh, you know, downstairs yelling, and he takes his poor little child and dangles his little baby feet over the side of that balcony and pulls him back. You know, Martin Bashir's like, what are you thinking? And he's like, oh, I'm strong and tight. The fans wanted to see him. You know, so I think a lot of feet were kicking. (laughs) That baby was terrified. (laughs) (laughs) His feet was kicking. He had no shoes, socks on, nothing. I mean, (laughs) right. In my opinion, they didn't even have a really good rapport. Um, If that's the way, if he didn't feel comfortable enough to, to say, you know, uh, yeah, moving on to the next question or moving on to the next thing. Um, shoot, he should have got more to follow him. That would have been a better uh, daggone show anyway. Well, I don't know if it w- was it in the um, the rebuttal special, but like I, I just wish that Michael talked more about his skin condition because I just I feel like you know, of course Martin was trying to focus on the surgery, but Michael really didn't go into detail about what he was dealing with with his skin condition. I just wish he would have dealt, you know, really went into detail about that because he never really did outside of the Oprah interview. So, yeah. Right. Even if he went into that, do you think people would have believed him? I mean, we got a whole autopsy report now. People still think it's a lie. Do you think that it was so far at that point, by the time he was trying to explain it, people just were not, some people were not interested in hearing it. 
They were they the, the people that wouldn't have believed him wouldn't have believed him, but I just I just for my own, I guess. I, I just wish he would have went into detail about that because like, like, um, you know, in the, in the Diane Sawyer interview, she, you know, went there and, and, you know, was implying things. And Michael, once again, he did, he didn't really deal with the question in a way where, you know, this is what I'm dealing with. He just, you know, dealt with it kind of the same way, you know, my plastic surgery wasn't made for Michael Jackson. He kind of gave that same type of answer. He didn't really go into detail about this is what I'm dealing with. But I just felt like, you know, of course the, the people that didn't want to believe him wouldn't have believed him. And of course the press was, was going to treat him the way he, they treated him. But I just still wish he would have. He would have really stuck his stake in the ground and said, Hey, this is what I'm dealing with. And, you know, do you think, and I, was this the same interview that Diane saw your interview where Lisa Marie said, he's an artist. If he wants to do yeah, that, that was such a weird comment to make when he was talking about his skin disorder. Yeah, I know. I know. I seem to recall that, you know, Bashir learned about Gavin and he convinced Michael that bringing Gavin and his family back to Neverland mm-hmm. would be a good way to show that this is what his relationship is with kids. I think it was so about. snaky. That might be what happened. I think he was, wasn't he, it was a shot when Michael was like, like, cause you know, he had on rides and stuff. And I think Gavin was in one of those um, with Michael. And then, yeah, I think Lamont's right. And I think, like, next thing you know, they sitting there holding hands. I was like, Jesus Christ. I know. Like, yeah. Like, what just happened? So, do we... <laughs> Is the hand holding the end of the Invincible Era? <laughs> Dear Lord! <laughs> like, is at that point... Yeah, we pivoted. We're, we're in the this is it era immediately on the other <laughs> side. Well, I think, well, so no, no. And the, 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 it's a no because an, immediately after that, the, the Gav, um, the accuser, I'm trying not to use his name if I can. The accuser and his family went into crisis mode with Michael. Yeah. To, yeah. So we're not there yet because then we get the footage you were never meant to see, which we, we, we need to touch on just a little bit. And then we get immediately after that, a couple months later, the private home movies. And then we get one more chance, which I remember going out and buying that single and being underwhelmed when I put it on my CD player. Um, but Are we, we considering one more chance a part of the Invincible Air? Yeah, that's 2003. Released in 03, it was his very last uh, single that he released um, while he was alive. Obviously, there are singles after that. Um, And the video (laughs) was shot. He was shooting the video when the raid on Neverland happened. Yeah. Now, Uh, question. Wasn't that on number ones, though? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but it also got released as a single, so you could go by the... Well, no, it it was... Yeah, it was on number one. It was at the tail end of number ones. So... He literally re-released like history disc one, and then threw one more chance on it. Like it was pretty much the same songs, yeah. I guess my question is: Does number one satisfy the deal that he had at Sony at that yep. point? Yep. Yep. I think so. I think that was his. Yeah, that was his mindset. Yep. That was it, and that was it. And I, I remember being disappointed as a child with not a job and not a lot of money, buying the number ones, and he had no, you know, it, one more chance. Just wasn't that great to me, and I was like, you know, well, I can't get my money back, and I don't want it back, but I'm mad about it. But I don't know. I didn't like. Did y'all like that song? One more chance. Did y'all like it? No, I liked it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess I'm alone. Yeah. <laughs> now, 
that doesn't mean that I didn't illegally download it <laughs> and burn it onto every CD well, you that I had. Ashley used to make me tapes, y'all, and send them to my house. Oh, oh I didn't wow. just make you tapes. I was the mixtape girl at school. Yeah. So everybody would, they would give, you give me your playlist and five dollars and I come back with the live wire That was my hustle. That and uh, I also sold candy out of my backpack. Well, I ain't pay you five dollars for nothing. Actually, all my stuff was free. Yeah, I mean, because at that point I had, you know, I'd already made some money. So, uh, but yeah, that that catalog, that LimeWire catalog was fire. And One More Chance was so hard for us to get a hold of before Number Ones came out. We kept hearing rumors about it. Then uh, they played it overseas and it had a bunch of drops on it. I can't remember what bbc radio or what the hell it was playing on with all those drops and then finally i think the last argument i remember from that era was does number one truly satisfy the contract and michael's argument was the contract says it has to have new creative material one more chance is new here's these other hits work it out and that's how he satisfied the language of what is an album in your deal and an album has to have basically the way that labels define an album is that you have created new content through a certain period so michael had to finagle that a, a bit to to make that satisfy the requirement and i think sony was kind of just up against the wall at that point they knew they wasn't gonna spend no money anyway they didn't want to do what he said so you might as well yeah you I like the song. the song. I don't care about Lamont. I'm with you. I thought the song. Why was you like the song? I do. Like the video. So the video that was released when he was alive, which was the compilation video, I actually like that better than the official video, which was released after he passed. I think it was released officially in 2010, um, where he's like singing to the people on stage, uh, jumping all over the tables. You don't really see his face. It's that, that that hair was nice though. No, the hair was nice. The hair was wonderful. But the theory of the music video for those who haven't seen it, I think you should paint the picture user 1.5. It's Michael on the ground performing to people on a stage, right? Yeah, Michael is like in a like, club or something. Yeah, empty club. Like a club. Right. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the lion outside the cage looking at the humans or something. Like it's it's very uh um people coming into this like nightclub and then they walk up on the stage michael's actually singing in the on the tables in the seats jumping from table to table from seat to seat singing to the people on stage um and it's a really dark club it's it's um an interesting concept for the video but the one that was released because like i said he was filming that that video when the raid on neverland happened um the so the one that was actually released was just a compilation of his different his other music videos um and i actually like that one better than the official video personally oh. i like i like the unedited i mean unfinished one I like the the the, um, the official radio with with him in the club. Yeah, a little chest out. I was like, okay. We were, <laughs> we were talking about on. we were talking about how he didn't do any close ups of his face. There were no close ups of his face. Was that like a was that a creative choice? It was well, because 
Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Lamont. Well, they were going to shoot the, the, the front shots with his face, but that was the same day the raid, the raid happened. Yeah. So, Is, For real? That's what it was? Yeah. That's what happened. It was that day. So yep. he, I can imagine he was probably shook because when I watch it, they had to have already known that it was happening because Michael is giving me very much scared cat energy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Y'all don't y'all don't see that? Y'all don't see that in his face? I need to rewatch it. I don't like the analogies all. Okay. (laughs) Maybe that is a bad analogy, but he's he's giving me very much like I am uncomfortable as fuck, but I'm already clocked in to work, you know, like (laughs) got some real life shit going on, but you have to get through your work day. And he had so much riding on that. Like I I can just only imagine what that felt like but i do remember how that kind of hit the discussion boards again because we all didn't right. have the twitters and, and facebook and all of that so I, when it hit the discussion boards it was wow michael was in the middle of filming and neverland sh- it, it is rated so i wouldn't have shown my face either that day i'm sure he was under a lot of stress if he knew if not um I don't really have a good explanation. For I feel it. like I heard he found out while shooting and maybe then they just like stopped. Yeah. Something uh, like that. But I mean, it was definitely unfinished and like the close up shot, I think they were doing mostly like wide master shots first and then they were going to punch it up with, you know, close ups and all that stuff. Uh, but they just never got to it because of the news. Yeah. I would imagine they just got what they got that day because he's not yeah. going to come back and finish it tomorrow. Oh, hell no. So, yeah. Tomorrow, he might not be free as a bird. You know what I mean? I mean, honestly, I mean, at that point, he, he ends up getting... Yeah. He doesn't know what's gonna what tomorrow brings. I would have had my ass out the door. I got to go to my house because they're gonna arrest me. Matter of fact, I'm not gonna turn myself in. You're gonna arrest me today because I'm about to tear some shit up. I know you ain't at the house. <laughs> wasn't he kicking around with glasses in the video? Like, wasn't he being destructive for no reason and one more chance? He was, <laughs> and that's why I'm saying, like, he gave me that energy. Like, something is fucked up in the universe, and I don't really know what to do, but. Somebody said I gotta dance. Um, like <laughs> somebody said I gotta dance, and I gotta do it right now. So you think he had the intuition to think something bad is happening? First of all, so we know that when you get to a certain level of money and power, you know when something's about to happen because you got enough people in different places yeah, who are yeah. gonna tip you off. So some somebody called Michael and told him the feds were on the like, way because somebody probably, honestly, somebody probably called him from the you know and said tomorrow's the day they're gonna do it. Yeah, that or, I mean, you've talked about, I've never been to Neverland, but you've talked about that long road to Neverland and it, oh, yeah. we all know it's secluded. I'm sure 20 miles out, then you know that caravan's on the way to Michael's house. Man, it's a like, that's, a, you know, that, that going up to Neverland is like, you know where you're headed because it's so, <laughs> it's so narrow. Has anyone else been? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, Alicia, like it's very narrow. That's a drive. That's yeah. a drive. And you feel like a billy goat. Like right. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, am I a billy goat going up the hill to get some grass or something? Like it's it's a it's a nice little trek. And then you know you know where you're going. When you get there, you're like, I'm here. It's not this like I don't, I don't know if some people think it's like celebrities you think about maybe today where there's like this big presence of 
security or whatever. Wow. Even at, at at its heyday, you could jump the fence. I mean, literally, just put there one. There was no fence. There were like these two little. Well, no, it was fence. It was just a ranch. It's right. a ranch. It was a ranch There's fence. No actual fence, fence. And you just kind of like it just kind of appears like you're driving up the mountain, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, oh, there it is. <laughs> it's very. Yeah. It's very. And I mean, it's huge. I mean. Just pick a place. You can go. That's how that dude filmed that video that Ashley sent. That dude that just recently filmed a video. I see, I mean, Alicia, you went, so you know how easy that is to actually do. Um, yeah. Because it's such a big property and it's not like super protected. It's like, it's a ranch. So you just jump over the little Dorothy fence and, <laughs> you know, look like I, the fence out of the Wizard of Oz. That's the best, like, you know, it's like that. And right. you just jump over it and you can go do whatever you want to do. And so... Yeah, they just went right in there, I'm sure. They just yeah. broke. But you also have to remember, that was like an illusion of a gate and a fence because really then there's another, I don't know how long, two miles before you get the big gate that you mm-hmm. see. Uh-huh. The yep. black gate and, you know, mm-hmm. the ornate stuff. So, yeah, you, mm-hmm. can, you can film in that first part, but you ain't getting to the second part. <laughs> no, nah, you're not going to get to the Neverland gates today. Right. <laughs> you're not going to get, like when we went, there was a security guard there and he came out and talked to us. I was about to jump that fence so bad, but I didn't do it. And he came out, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to jump today. But he came out and talked to us and we were asking like basic questions. Like, you know, does the family come up here? Do you see any of his siblings up here? And you know, that sort of stuff. But, like, there's someone there. But, I mean, if you wanted to punch that dude in the nose and run, you could, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recommend it, but I'm... an endorsement for violence. The Black Jackson Estate does not suggest you do some scammer ass shit like that. It, but I, I, I mean, I, I... But you could. You could, you, you know. Could. I mean, so, I mean, you kind of think about, like, Neverland. Them going up there was so high-key for such a low-key place. Um, but they came with the squad, you know, and I think he knew that that was going down. But then when he found out it happened, I think he was just like, that might be where that scared cat energy is coming from. Like you said, Ashley. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I know that in the, in this timeline, the court cases are really like the end of this era, but truly from the moment that young man came on the screen holding his hand. Yeah. We good. we pivoted into a whole different yeah. situation. So usual 1.5, I we're right here at the end. I'll leave it to you to close out the, the invincible timeline. You know, everything Michael did after living with Michael Jackson was to try to mitigate the effects of living with Michael Jackson. And that started with the rebuttal. So the take to the, uh, it was called take to the footage you were never meant to see. And that was actually uh, shot by, um, oh God, I can't remember his name. You guys have to help me out. <laughs> the, the videographer. Ahmed. Oh. Marshally. Uh, Ahmed. Yes. So it was shot by him while uh, Martin Bashir was uh, was 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 having his interviews with Michael Jackson, and you know he he goes on record. I mean, he goes <laughs> he does a lot of shady stuff after that. The best thing he did was go on record saying like Martin Bashir saw me filming it, so it wasn't an uh, you know a sneak attack. Um, and that was you know of course let me tell you we talked earlier about why was Mor Povich the one to interview 
uh, I'm sorry, the one to introduce. I don't know if he was on Fox then or not. This did air on Fox. Um, but let, Maury Povich and his, the lot of te- tests determined you are not a liar. Who else, who, who else was going to do this to call a liar out other than Maury Povich? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying. So um, do you think that helped him? No. no. I think this was a great treat for fans, though. Like, emotionally, (laughs) I needed private home movies because school was rough at that point. School was rough. Like, we knew that when Living with Michael Jackson went off, that school was going to be rough. So being a fan was not fun at that time. Nope. And this was a treat. This was great. Um... And it was just him being candid and showing us stuff that we hadn't seen. And really, it was one of those times where we were just like, feed us. Feed us content, Michael. Feed us anything but this. Because it was just everywhere. And it was all bad. And nothing looked good for him. The fact that he won, still in that moment, I, I, I had just made up my mind. I was like, man, I don't know. It just didn't look good. But um, this was just a wholesome moment. It was. And he was, he looked relaxed. He looked, he, it was the Michael that I was used to. Unfortunately, at that time, I remember when it aired, I was at a friend's house and there was a few people over and they kind of had it in the background. And then they started making fun of him during the super soaker thing. And then I was like, I, I got a piece out. Um, so mm-hmm. I didn't even really get to see it at the time but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. unfortunately like no it didn't make a dent for outside of nj fans but there were some hits in there i mean when he oh, went to alabama and had that possum yes you find good things at the salvation army don't you tito like all <laughs> that was good stuff so, i mean the whole thing is just gem after gem after gem so good I like when they showed his mom knowing all the lyrics to the way you make me feel his mom and Janet. Oh yeah. The show and they were just like on point. They knew all the lyrics and it was just like, that was just beautiful. Good management would have had him do that instead of the Bashir and from the first start. Well, um, right, damn, Lamont. I mean, it's so true. Oh gosh! And on that note, (laughs) I will say, just to leave it on a positive note about living with Michael Jackson, there was some a couple of gems. Um, just seeing the glimpses of him with Prince in Paris and how close they were. Yeah. And um, Michael's hilarious laugh in the car when that fan jumps in front of the car and starts dancing. Mm-hmm. I think they're in Vegas. In Germany or wherever, yeah. 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 And the bell sleeves that he was wearing in, for the Bambi Awards. I mean, I think that's an honorable mention as well. I, I really loved him sitting in that tree because that's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> like that three days out of a work week like I just want to go I just want to go away I want to go sit <laughs> <in the tree. laughs> like, I, like I, I love to Michael how he looked like he looked good he had a healthy weight on him 
you know, like he didn't, he looked, I thought he looked really good, you know, um, and it depended on the hair sometimes. Yeah, well, Better see, than... like the hair in the home videos, he probably should have combed it. But... <laughs> <laughs> he looked charming. <laughs> but uh, you know, the hair in 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 most most of the Bashir, especially when he had on that red uh shirt with that big crown um pendant. See, and... I didn't like his hair there. I well, it was combed and it was, <laughs> and y'all know I'm a hairstylist, so I'm just like, as long as it's combed and it don't look dirty, like I'm here for it. Because Michael, he walked around sometimes like the '80s with the juice, you know, with yeah. the curl was perfect. But once that curl went away, it started looking a little dry sometimes. So <laughs> Michael did bad. not wrap his hair at night. He did not. He did not. I don't think he even had a satin pillow. You could tell. He just <laughs> well, this conversation was fun. The Invincible Era was it was it was a fun time. There's a lot going on, a lot of good, a lot not so good, but but Michael was Michael. And yeah. um Invincible is still one of my top albums. I I think it's so underrated and I think that um, that's unfortunate because you really, there really are some good, uh, tracks on that album that a lot of people will never hear because they don't like that. You know, they, they think that's not prime. That's not prime Michael Jackson. What a journey. So, uh, y'all thank you for joining us for another episode of the black Jackson estate. Feel free to go back to our previous episode about invincible and hear the songs that we said we would cut from the album because it was too damn long. Um, and feel free to listen to that, uh, just to refresh your memory, um, along with this timeline. So, uh, you can, Catch us on Twitter at BLK Jack Estate, and you can search the Black Jackson Estate on all platforms to pull up this podcast. I mean, you're listening to us right now, so you found us somewhere. Keep going back there. Thank you to all of our guests for joining us today. Uh, all of their social media is listed in the notes. Click them, follow them, enjoy their content, and uh, yeah. It's the end of the year. Happy holidays. 